what I am as a walking metaphor. I hope it's darn clear what I was told is wrong with me. And I hope it's also darn clear that I love that. I love that about myself. I celebrate it. I show it. I dance within it and have joy all around it. You can do the same. Hey there. So you may know my guest today, Jeffrey Marsh, from their spiritual and inclusive messages that have received over 1 billion views on social media. Jeffrey is a viral TikTok and Instagram sensation, the first openly non-binary public figure to be interviewed on national television, and the first non-binary author to be offered a book deal with any of the big five publishers landing at Penguin Random House. And Jeffrey's best-selling Buddhist self-esteem guide, How to Be You, is this innovative category non-conforming work that combines memoir and workbook and spiritual advice, really inviting anyone and everyone into the conversation through a lens of kindness and inclusivity. And How to Be You, it topped Oprah's Gratitude Meter, was named Excellent Book of the Year by Ted Ed. And Jeffrey also has been a student and a teacher of Zen for over 20 years. And this practice, it's really been central to both their lens on life and capacity to do the work they do in a grounded, deeply present, open-hearted, and joyful way. So excited to share this conversation with you. And a quick note before we dive in. So at the end of every episode, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but we actually recommend a similar episode. So if you love this episode, at the end, we're going to share another one that we're pretty sure you're going to love too. So be sure to listen for that. Okay, on to today's conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. There's so many different fun places that I want to go with you. I'm thinking almost like a a bit of a three-act play. Um, If you're cool with that, I'd love to take a step back in time, explore some of your early life. Then I thought it'd be interesting to dive into language and identity because I think it's a really interesting conversation. And then I'd also love to explore some of the bigger ideas and concepts that you're regularly talking about that are from your book as well. Does that sound good? What if I was like, no, I'm out of here. Yeah, those are all my favorite things. Awesome. So I'm ready. That sounds great. So so as we're having this conversation, actually, where are you right now? Where are you these days? In beautiful, sunny Los Angeles. Ah, nice. I was a New Yorker from for many years myself. So Yeah. Well, I'm, okay, so now I'm curious. Whenever somebody goes from New York to LA, I'm always curious what the motivation is behind that. Weather. Ah, all right. <laughs> One word. <laughs> well, <laughs> That was partly it. I mean, I actually didn't think that the weather would affect me as much as it has, but it's 72 and sunny today, um, and that doesn't hurt, but it was mostly for career, for making TV and doing TV stuff. Yeah, that still is where so much of the the industry is. Um, But you grew up not too far from New York. Well, geographically not too far, but it's sort of like a different universe in a lot of ways. Um, York County, PA. For those who've never heard of that or have never been there, I'd love if you could paint a little bit of a picture of what the area that you grew up in was like, especially when you were a kid. It was the woods. It was a large farm, um, over 300 acres of a farm, which means I got to run around and play, but I also didn't have much contact with others, with other people. One of my main sources of social interaction was the church. And the church that I happened to attend during high school with my parents was also the clan meeting house. So the clan would meet in the basement. <laughs> and uh, we were not members, but um, that was going on in the building. So it was a very, very conservative part of Pennsylvania and a place you know, I was growing up in a place where I wasn't even sure if there was anyone else like me mm. at all. Tell me more of what you mean by like me. Uh, specifically, you know, in my head, as I said it, I meant non-binary, but beautifully rainbow, LGBTQ, imaginative. There were a couple years where I really literally mm, thought maybe I was born on another planet and was sent somehow to Pennsylvania. I don't know if you wanted to get this deep this quickly, but I have a bit of a reputation for doing that. You know, I was told basically in many ways when I was a kid that I was worthless. Mm. So one of the narratives I had was, well, actually, I'm very special. (laughs) And it took me many years to come to the realization that every single person is special. That specialness is something that includes everybody. Mm. When you get that message as a kid, which is a devastating message to get at any age, but especially when you're really young, 
when you know the likelihood of you having resources available for you to understand how to process that in a way that isn't any way constructive that just doesn't exist in most kids let alone most adults right how does that land with you how does that affect the the way that you move through your life the way that you see yourself the way that you relate to others at, at that moment in time i spent so many years deeply alone and feeling deeply lonely. And the interesting thing, and the reason I love so much what I do today, is that as a kid, I imagined a beautiful, loving family. It's sort of like, um, I don't think it, it, it was exactly like this, but it's imagining the family I had, you know, where I was born on Mars, right? It, I just imagined this loving group of people who accepted me exactly for who I am and how I am. And I had enough agency as a kid to be able to imagine that. And so when I became an adult and literally found that through social media, through community, it had such a deep resonance for who I was as a kid. I had in a way trained myself to recognize who were the good-hearted people. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's um it makes a lot of sense, you know, and and it doesn't have to make sense to me even if it didn't. You know, this is your this is your mm. truth, you know. <laughs> it sounds like one of the ways that you also felt okay was was effectively to create your own world when you were a kid. Your own experiences, I know you write about and you speak about and you talk about, you describe, you know, effectively creating your own, your own world, your own theater, um, your own play acting in a barn where this becomes like your, your almost escape, like your place where you can be okay. But it also sounds like it was something that you, that existed only for you. You kept secret for a long time. Absolutely. And one of the hallmarks of it was always keeping an ear out for, uh, the sound of my dad's boots mm. on the gravel that was outside the barn. Uh, you know, this constant, split in my soul of being totally free and playing and twirling and dancing around and wearing dresses that I had bought or that I had borrowed, you know, and, and kept in a trunk inside the barn. Um, literally playing dress up long after you're supposed to not do so, but also having part of my soul, part of my heart split off to make sure I wasn't going to get in trouble. And I, it took years and years for me to give up that second part to stop worrying about whether I would get in trouble and to fully embody who I am. This is why when I talk about inner child work, I talk about my inner child rescuing me. Mm. A lot of people talk about parenting their inner child, uh, which is lovely, but my inner child kept the innocence and the fun and the idea of joy that was really earned by that kid, you know, looking back. And that was kept in place as, you know, my inner child, to speak about it metaphorically, my inner child was a bookmark of that joy. And thank goodness, you know, that I had something to come back to and to reconnect with yeah. as an adult. Such a powerful way to look at that. When you use the phrase, get in trouble, you are, you didn't want to, quote, get in trouble when you heard the boots of your dad coming. What do you mean by that? In your mind back then, what was getting in trouble to you? 
it meant several things on a practical level. There was no adult that I can remember in my life who didn't want me not to be me. And every adult, people at church, uh, school teachers, um, parents, tried everything they could think of to get me not to be this beautifully LGBTQ. And that included withholding affection, that included violence, that included uh, social, uh, you know, hints, uh, jokes at my expense, uh, anything, anything at all. And on an even deeper level than those sort of tactics, I think what getting in trouble meant to me as a kid was that I would be even more isolated, that I would be rejected, left out of the group, um, left to fend for myself that kind of thing. Mm. When you were that age, growing up in that community, were there any other people that you could look to? Were there any other role models? Was there anyone else where you could look and say, oh, there's someone I can relate to. There's somebody who seems like they're similar to me and, and living life in a way that felt good. Or was it something where you really had no access to other people like that? For years and years, I felt deeply lonely and didn't really have access to people like that. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're a teenager and you see a picture of David Bowie and you're like, what is that? What is that person doing <laughs> over there? What is that? That's what I'm doing. Where did that person come from? You know? And I guess it's deep and poetic and beautiful at the same time that one of David's personas was was someone from outer space, right? This kind of feeling of you're the only one. So David Bowie comes to mind. RuPaul was on TV. Um, there is an author named Kate Bornstein who wrote a book called Gender Outlaw. And that book came out in 1996. It's actually, it gets even better. It's called Gender Outlaw on Men, Women, and the Rest of Us. And that came out in 1996, and I was on my way going off to college, and that book changed my life. So a little bit later in those those teenage years, I began to connect a lot of the dots and and find a sense of community. Mm -hmm. But it does sound like a lot of that community, it wasn't local. It was, it sounds like it was more, there were people in the media, there were people out there where you saw, oh, okay. I can relate to them in a lot of different ways. I can relate maybe to the community that they seem to be existing within, but that's not here. That's not sort of like my immediate experience. Um, If I have this right, your mom was also a a Lutheran pastor at the time, right? Correct. Yep. And you describe, uh, I guess it was when you're 11, um, a moment in the car where you decide it's it's time. It's time to tell my mom what I'm feeling. I'm curious what was happening inside of you in the minutes, the seconds before you said those words where you said, you know, like, mom, this is what's happening that made you feel like this is the moment, like I have to do this now after really secreting it away for all of the time before that. It it felt like a pressure cooker. Mm. I mean, it was a jumbled mess. But the only way I could conceive of to be comfortable and to be happy 
was to inform the most important people in my world. And my mom was obviously included in that. And at the time, all I could come up with was, I think I like boys, uh, because that was the only reference point that I had. And I would end up coming out to her again at 16 and again at 18, and it would be a rolling process on into adulthood. Mm. When you use that language, and I guess as you just described, that was the only language that you had at the time. You know, it's interesting, and I think this is an probably a, a good transition into just really exploring language and identity, which has become such an emerging part of the conversation, the public conversation, I think over the last really five years or so. But before we get there, now I'm really fascinated by this book that you say hits in 1996, right? Because literally having, if not the word non-binary, but the expression of that identity in the title or the subtitle itself in 96 is a profound act Mm -hmm. because that is not part of in any meaningful way, the public conversation at that moment in time. I'm curious now also, when you dive into that book, you know, now a number of decades ago, um, what's that experience of... (laughs) Thanks for the reminder. (laughs) (laughs) What's that experience like for you? You know, because I, I, I'm wondering if that, is that the moment where you start to say, okay, so I've been, I've been trying to figure out what is the language here for a long time, but not just the language. What is the sense of identification and who I am underneath it? Yeah. And what was the role of that book in sort of like deepening you into that exploration? Well, the, to put it simply, the book saved my life. Hmm. It was a process of starting to see myself less and less as a freak. and looking back, you know, for a book to have so much power, it wasn't necessarily, oh, there are gender enthusiastic people in the world. There are gender delightful people in the world, right? Or whatever language you want to use. There is something beyond man and woman, right? As the subtitle says, but it, it's, it's not just that it's just, it's not just technical vocabulary. It's the idea that I didn't have to fit into what I was told the only possibility to be a human being is. So there's something technical like, yeah, this movement exists. But it's also something mind-altering, that there are people who literally think differently on this planet. And I, I guess part of what was so transformative is, I can go find those people. Mm. The 90s is also a really interesting time for you to be grappling with this and sort of like figuring a lot of these things out because this is a moment in time where HIV, where AIDS Mm. is this absolutely terrifying, terrifying thing that seems like it is overtaking communities. The it's literally just was watching the new piece Tick Tick Boom on Jonathan Larson's life, the playwright behind Rent and being a longtime New Yorker, I remember being in New York and being downtown and being in the East and West Village and like like knowing all the few people who were in the play and also having friends and seeing so much addiction, so much loss. Um, so this has got, you know, this is all something that's going on as you're sort of like trying to figure out like who I am, where where is my, is there a place for me? Was that a part of what was spinning around in your head during that whole sort of like 90s um, window as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I can remember being on the farm as a very young kid in the early 80s and seeing the news talk about the gay plague and seeing Rock Hudson die and all, all of the stuff that as a very young person, when I was aware of who I am, that being associated with loneliness, being a pariah, rejection, death, uh, it can get heavy. And at the same time, you know, I'm glad you brought up Jonathan Larson because throughout Rent especially is this lightness. Living for today is part of the message. And I also got that. It's hard for me to go back and piece together, you know, pros and cons list of what of growing up the way I did. You know, you said um, figuring it out. And I get asked a lot in interviews, when did you know you were different? Sort of this stock question. And I always give a very lovely slash sassy answer that it, I never felt different. What I did come to realize is that other people had a problem with who I am. But that's not, to me, that's not the same as feeling like I'm not a human being like they are. I'm not, uh, I don't have the same wants, desires, um, need to belong, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select. 
then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. When you come out to your mom then, and then again, and then again, (laughs) during this sort of like Mm -hmm. window of time, it occurs to me also that like for her as a, as both somebody who is devout, uh, somebody who is a parent, somebody who exists in a particular community with a particular set of norms and beliefs, she's got all of those sets of concerns. And at the same time, she's got to be seeing all the news also, seeing all the same stories that you're seeing. And I'm wondering if in the back of her mind, part of what's going on is also like, this is my kid. And is is this the life that my kid may be stepping into? And I, like, I love my kid and I'm really just concerned for their well-being. I'm curious whether you've ever had that conversation with her. Why, as a matter of fact, we have had that conversation. And she, yeah, she was flat out. So when I told her at 11, she said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're too young to talk about these things. Don't ever talk to me about that again. And she was screaming and very upset. And what I received as an 11-year-old kid was, wow, this thing that is inherent that I can't change about me is awful, is evil, is my fault. Uh, I got to hide it for the rest of my life. Just the most terrible slamming sound of the closet door uh, in my face. And... Years later, when we talked about it, she said, I was scared that you would get HIV. I was scared that you'd be alone for the rest of your life. She said that her biggest motivating factor was fear. And at 11, I couldn't comprehend that. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of wished, um, I don't usually ever talk about this, but I I wish she could have told me that at 11 years old. It was nice to hear it at, you know, 30 or whatever I was when we, when we talked about that. But in a way, the programming had already been done. And that's really unfortunate. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, then it's, it doesn't land as there's, quote, something wrong with you or quote, like all the other ways that it could land as a young kid um, and even as a, a young adult. 
It's more, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about you being okay as a parent, which is a, a profoundly different message. Yes. And I actually heard from both of my parents later in life, you know, after I had left home, that they felt it was good parenting to get me not to be LGBTQ in the sense that they were saving me from some horrible, lonely life, disease-ridden life. And it's hard to argue with that because that's what the culture was telling them. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, it's interesting you ask the, the typical parent what they want for a kid. And, and most of them will rattle off some variation of, oh, I want, I want my kid to be happy. Mm-hmm. But the deeper truth is before, even before that, what you really want is for them to be safe. You want for them to be okay. And sometimes, you know, that's how we map that is guided by the culture, the ethos, the philosophy that surrounds us. It's all, it's all we know. Um, and so it's like the intention is actually not a bad intention. But the way that we think is the appropriate way to go about it ends up causing harm that we don't even realize is being caused in real time, and sometimes not until many years later. Yeah, a lot of parents come to me to ask how they can support their LGBTQ kids, which is a wonderful thing. I love always getting those messages. And I have a bit of a, a shocking answer to that one. And it's as a parent, you need to love yourself. You need to accept all of the things that you find unacceptable about yourself and then demo what that integration is like for a young person. And I never, never wished that I had a perfect set of parents, but a more um, consciously loving set. And I mean loving themselves to have seen that when I was a kid, I think would have been something quite magical for me. Mm. Yeah, it's so powerful, right? Because at end of the day, it really doesn't matter what you say as a parent. It matters. The behavior that you model is what sends the most powerful message. And you can't walk around all day saying this, 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 and this, and then do the exact opposite and move through the world in a different way. It's like (laughs) kids. You should love yourself. Right. It's like, yeah, and then go do all sorts of self-destructive things to yourself as a parent. Right. Exactly. You don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. So when you move out into the world and you start to be able to actually say yes to your own community, say yes to your own sense of identity, say yes to your own language. You described earlier um, when, you, like, that eleven-year-old moment where you tell your mom, I, "I think I like boys." That was the only language that you really had at that moment in time. But that's really—it's changed, it's evolved, and it's expanded. And that language in the early days was really um, sexual orientation focused. But the language now—not just you, but sort of like that—that that, there's been this really powerful evolution of language. And I don't want to say evolution of identity because I. We've always been what we've always been. And there there have always been people of all identities and all sexual orientations forever. But now it seems like there's been this evolution and granularity in language that allows people to really figure out, like, what is the language that allows me to express myself differently? I'm curious how you how you have sort of explored the world of 
finding the language that felt like you? Oh, goodness. I mean, it was just a bunch of, it was, it was a playground. <laughs> it was a hodgepodge of trying different things. Uh, yeah, I cycled through lots of different stuff. And I was on Vine and I was famous and doing videos on Vine. And the kids on Vine said, what are your pronouns? Are you non-binary? This was like 2013. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what are these kids talking about? And so I went to the source everyone at the time would go to, tumblr.com. <laughs> and I looked up, you know, what are these kids talking about? And started reading personal experiences of people who were non-binary. And the light bulb went off. I felt so comfortable and at home and at peace with that. And because of the kids, as I like to say, I became one of the first public figures. I was the first person to talk about it on national TV, being non-binary and talking about sort of this modern era of the pronouns and, and how to treat people like us with the most respect. Mm. Talk to me about that relationship between use of appropriate pronouns and respect, because um, I think that's one of the things that people will sometimes struggle with. They'll, they'll think, oh, well, you know, like, quote, why does it matter so much what pronoun I use? But it's really not a language thing. It's bigger than that. Yeah. It's the sort of statement. Was there a period yeah, It's or kind a of like a little bit of a lingering question. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. Um, that my favorite, my favorite kind. Um, I, I, to me, it's about a human soul. So a label is not the totality of a human experience, but it is a place for someone to land, to feel seen, to feel understood, to feel respected, to feel loved, to feel accepted, to feel the thing that I was craving the most when I was nine years old on the farm. Mm. I mean, it occurs to me also language is, it's a way to communicate um, what's going on. It's a way to communicate your inner life, your inner experience, your inner sense of identity, of who you are. And when you don't have that language or when it doesn't quite fit, it's almost like, and, and tell me if this is completely off or if it resonates with you. It's almost like you're 80% seen, you're 60% seen, but you're never quite fully seen or expressed because the language is never quite accurate. Does that in any way resonate? Yeah. And until circa 2013 on Tumblr, I didn't have that level of comfortability. Hmm. It's kind of hard to explain if someone has been comfortable in their label their entire lives. And I think of this, 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 <laughs> this is one of my favorite um, references. Gene Hackman is an actor and he, he has talked about in interviews about how he doesn't even think of himself as a good actor, just a comfortable one that he's been in like 40 movies. And so his 41st one, he's just going to walk on set and know exactly what to do. And the, I, the concept of having language that truly sees a person is that level of comfortability. It's a level of goodness. It's a level of human relaxation 
that is hard to describe if you've never been through it. Mm. So it's not just respect. It's about, I mean, it's a yes and. It's respect and ease to a certain extent. Yes. That's the perfect way to say it. Mm. Yep. Respect and ease, which as you're saying it, it seems a little, a little ironic to me because people usually have a little time where they are not at ease trying to learn the new pronouns, right? <laughs> so it's a little bit of like bumps in the road until everybody is at ease, but that does eventually happen and it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I'm 56 and, you know, I came up in a world where, you know, the teaching was, you know, like, there are these two things. And names were assigned based on that. And those two different states, you know, like male, female, were assigned to a being at birth generally. And then you reference them throughout life that way. And it is interesting to me because we live in a very different world, which is an amazing thing right now. Not that, again, not that people are different, but that there's an openness to actually acknowledging that there's more than this binary state. And that there's new language that really helps people step into and express like whatever, wherever they are in the spectrum in gender. And like you said, and yet at the same time, I still stumble on a regular basis. And I think a lot of folks listening to this have that same experience of stumbling. And the fear is always, I always want to lead with dignity. And so sometimes I will default to just not saying anything rather than saying the wrong thing. And I often, I, I feel like there's that fear in so many people is that you don't want to do harm and that misgendering, it, it can really do harm. And I wonder if there's sort of like, we're in this, I feel like we're in this moment right now where people are trying to figure out like, what is the, what is the, the way to step into the conversation on all sides where dignity and doing no harm are at the center of it all? And I feel like we're all stumbling in a really big way through that conversation in real time together. And thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because if we were unstumbling and if we were comfortable when people were not being respected or included, then I, I think it's probably a good thing to be uncomfortable. You said it so beautifully that this is a process with an end goal that is noble, that is beautiful, that is human connection. And it's such a delight to speak to you because so many people want to get bogged down in the rules and don't realize the spiritual aspects not that a person has to have a spirituality, but when I say spiritual aspects, like a like human dignity and respect, right? Because the danger has been, as non-binary folks, we've gone from people thinking we're absolute weirdos, not wanting anything to do with us, to now people being afraid to say the wrong thing around us. And in both instances, we are left off alone <laughs> with nobody to hang around with, right? People are afraid of us because we're weird or people are afraid of us because they're, they're going to say the wrong thing. And one encouragement I would give is 
we have encountered this many, you know, if you're talking to an, um, an out non-binary person, we've encountered this many, many, many times. And yes, it is not pleasant to be misgendered. It's not pleasant when people forget, but you should be included in that common human dignity and respect as well. Meaning, I as a human being don't want you to spend three days feeling bad because you said he. That doesn't seem very productive <laughs> to me. Yeah, and at the same time, right, as you just described, what's, what's the alternative is if you just, if you're so fearful of making, of saying the wrong thing, of making a mistake that you, the behavior that you choose to adopt is just to opt out of the conversation entirely, you're doing harm by basically engendering isolation, by creating separate worlds, by almost implying like th there is, I'm so uncomfortable with being wrong that I'm just going to like opt you out of my experience of life, of community, which inadvertently is an, just an entirely different way of doing harm. <laughs> yes. And it's a repeat of what we might call the old days when people just right. purposefully cut us out of society yeah. and, and the conversation altogether. Right. It's like the net effect is the same. And the yeah. intention may be different, but the net effect is, is the same thing. Yeah. And I always like to remind allies that you will goof. It's just, it's, it, it just is going to happen. And, and being able to do that and recover in as graceful a way as possible is part of being a, a warrior for equality on this earth. Hmm. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The other um, interesting evolution of language is, I, I think gender has been really cool to watch how the conversation has shifted around it. And the other part of it is sexual orientation. There are a lot of new phrases. There are a lot of new identifications. And I feel like there's kind of some fun being had with language along the way too. I think, I think is gender fun even sort of like part of the conversation? So there are so many variations now um, that, you know, I think in, you know, you're, you're talking about and, and granted, there's more than just male, female, and non-binary on the gender side also. There's a full spectrum of identifications. And now we're seeing that in sexual orientation also. And I feel like a lot of times people also still conflate sexual orientation and identification with gender and make assumptions that if you're this in one of those categories, then you must be this in the other. And yet there is like a beautiful amalgam of mix and match, you know, like whatever tapestry you want to put together that feels fully expresses you. It seems like there's this availability to pick and choose the language that continues to evolve in a really beautiful way from the outside looking in again, talking to you as, you know, like a, a straight cisgen midlife guy. Um, <laughs> do, does it, does it feel like that um, from your lens, from your experience? Yeah. Are you talking specifically about the kids on TikTok? That well, kind that, of vibe? But, <laughs> that, but also just like in common conversation these days, just like, mm. I feel like there's been an expansion, like it started sure in certain areas, but now um, even, you know, it's interesting, right? Cause even the word queer, I think is really interesting because that word I'm seeing used in so many different contexts now, sometimes without even reference to sexuality. And I think it's just fascinating to see how people are playing with this language and just adopting it to mean whatever it is that they feel somehow just resonates with them. Yeah. And it goes to show you how woefully inadequate language is to describe human lives, let alone behavior. But, you know, you're the way you encounter things and and how you feel and and all of that stuff. Language is just not adequate. And you highlight the invitation. I don't know if you meant to do this, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, someone like me is an invitation to folks who have never, uh, never thought twice about the labels they use. You know, for example, you use the word cis, meaning cisgender, uh, the opposite of transgender. And even to use the word opposite, like, what am I talking about? <laughs> you know, but it, 
for someone who never even encountered the word cis because they just thought of themselves as a man from start to finish, and that's been their whole experience, the invitation for me to someone like you, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is your box doesn't have to be so small Hmm. and proscribed either. That men don't have to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to be the mannest man, you know, or whatever the version of that is. That the comfort and play and gender queer nature of human existence as a non-binary person can be, you know, you can come to this playground, you can come to this, this field over here and hopefully find some, some peace and expansion yourself. Hmm. I like that invitation. <laughs> yeah. And it's never, just, I never, so a teenager will, you know, comment on one of my videos and say, is it okay if I'm a non-binary lesbian? And I say, of course, <laughs> right? It's kind of like what you were saying before. It's like, uh, we're, we're making this up as we go along and I'm perfectly fine with that. And if there's a word or set of words that you love that help you to feel seen and understood, even if that's man or woman or something, you know, a label that's, that you've used and has been common your whole life, you know, even if that's the case for you, hopefully you still find comfort in the idea that you don't have to have a standard. You don't have to meet a standard of who you are with sexuality or gender. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's such a powerful invitation for everyone, you know, and, and I think it's, I love the reframe and I love you and you know, like reflecting that back to me because I offered like this certain idea to you it unwittingly kind of like opting out of the same exploration. And so you reflecting it back to me is like, <laughs> you caught you how know, I did that. Right. Right. <laughs> no, I got it. It's all good. You know, it, it's like, we're all in this dance together, you know, and, and like, right. don't ever assume that you're on the sidelines trying to figure out like what quote they are trying to figure out. You just excited me so much because allies will ask me, how do I respect non-binary people? And I've started asking, well, what are your ideas? <laughs> what are you coming to, what are you coming to the table with? Because you're in this movement too, right? Of liberation. If that's what we're doing, you're you you belong here too. You helped me just now, right here in this podcast recording, identify why I'm uncomfortable with this kind of expert model of I'm supposed to tell people what's up, you know? It's I I don't like that feeling at all. Mm. I get that. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit also. Maybe it's not a shift gears, but it's just another point of curiosity for me. Um, Mm -hmm. You, at some point, and you probably picked this up because I used the phrase, do no harm earlier. There's a Buddhist side of you. I'm curious what brings you to that a bit further into life. Well, as a young person about, oh gosh, trying to do the math in my head over 20 years now ago, I was so intensely devoted to self-hatred and self-judgment. When I say I did extra credit, I worked on it on weekends. I did everything uh, that you could do as a young person in my 20s to hate myself 
almost out of existence. And so things got so desperate that I needed to move away to a monastery for a while, a Buddhist monastery, and have a chance to look at what exactly we are doing here and what we may be trying to do and why, honestly, why self-hate and other hate is such a huge issue. And I happen, you know, I wrote about this in, in How to Be You, but I happened to study with the person that that first used the term self-hate in a spiritual context. And she was, it was brilliant to study with her and take a deep look at why and how, more importantly, how that happens. Why Buddhism? I mean, there are... I'm lucky. Because <laughs> there are so many places that you, you could have chosen to step into so many different paths, so many different ideologies, philosophies. And I'm always curious why that, especially given the context of like, you know, you, you grew up in a particular tradition of like a faith-based tradition. Mm-hmm. I can understand why there would be a lot of friction there. When you're sort of saying I'm in a really dark place, like self-hate has effectively become my religion and I need to choose somewhere else to step into, to figure this out. There are so many different choices you could have made. I'm curious why that particular choice was made. It chose me. Self-hate had become my religion. Yes, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for the gift of that beautiful phrase. It had become my religion and addiction, uh, my family, my everything, my world. And I went into a spiritual bookstore in Philadelphia and across the bookstore was a book, handwritten, this this weird, like, artsy, handwritten font on the cover of the book. It said, there is nothing wrong with you. And it was written by the guide at the, at the monastery that I would eventually go to and, and train within. But of course, I saw the cover of that book, there is nothing wrong with you. And my brain started going, oh, yeah, right. I know this is wrong with me and this is wrong. It started like, you know, do you want the alphabetical list or order of importance of what's wrong with you? Right? And as my brain is doing that, my feet are like, walk, 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 walk over to that book, cracked it open and, and through whatever miracle was able to take in that message for at least a glimpse, you know, just a moment uh, in time enough to set me on that, that path. Do you know who Guan Yin is? What Guan Yin as in the goddess? The Bodhisattva, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. This, this Buddhist figure. Right. Statues of Guan Yin have had boobs, mustaches, sometimes both together, sometimes like this angelic being that has no gender. And a lot of the stories, depending on you know which country you're following that particular deity through, in the history of Buddhism, will take many forms, many genders to help someone reach nirvana or become more enlightened. So there is this tradition already built into Buddhism that transcends, I don't need to tell you, transcends the identity, but also helped me to become much more comfortable in this gender transcendent space. Mm. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And that was actually one of my curiosities because there is and it's not only in Buddhism, I feel like it exists more in various Eastern traditions than Western-based mm-hmm. traditions. 
there is much more comfort with the idea of dissociation with any particular gender identity, almost shape-shifting. And, you know, it's, it's just a part of the storytelling, the mythology, the ideology around it in a much more natural way. And I also feel like it's, it's also that way in the art and the culture of a lot more Eastern traditions as well. And it's sort of like Western said, mm -mm, <laughs> we need to lock this down. Um, and, you know, so it, I'm always fascinated by that divergence, you know, in, in how people storytell about themselves and the world and how the traditions have evolved sometimes over thousands of years around that. Yeah. You know, another prime example is indigenous cultures in North America yeah. too. But yeah, I like how you said Western culture, what was the phrase you used? We need to lock this down. I think it is a, in large part, you know, I didn't know, I don't know how philosophical about gender you want to get, but it does have to do with power struggles and, and hierarchies. And I didn't get to say this earlier, but the first suggestion of using a gender neutral pronoun came from women, from feminists in Ms. Magazine. So there is this cons in 1971. So there is this concept of undermining the power structures and the hierarchies by using more inclusive language that comes long before this language we're using now about non-binary identity. And to me, it's all of a piece. We're going for true equity for folks. Mm. When you decide to basically say, I, I'm going to step in the world as me and I'm going to fully own it and then step into social media and then start to really storytell and share ideas and share who you are in a very bold public way, you also really start to develop a lot of your own ideas and share them. That leads to this fantastic book, How to Be You, which is almost like, I feel it's almost like your, your 10 commandments. Um, but I don't want to call them commandments because that would assume that they would always be static. <laughs> and I feel like even that is sort of like not the intention behind it. Like this is a, dy a dynamic set of thoughts and let's have a conversation about them. So many fantastic thoughts around perfectionism and cultivating deep trust of yourself and really a devotion to self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-inquiry. Among the, the topics that you explore, which I thought was fascinating, was the relationship between punishment and control. Talk to me about this. Yes. You know, I realized through my own, how would you say it? Through my own self-hate journey, uh, that if I was always the worst person in the room, I was able to have some sense of control, some sense of normalcy, some sense uh, if it was always my fault, then at least I knew whose fault it was. And I don't know where it came from. Bravery, gumption, desperation to be able to step out of even the idea of whose fault is it <laughs> and the undermining of a sense of control or a sense of uh, even consistency that you give up with that. Yeah. From one Buddhist to another, how do we know ourselves? Well, we're the, we're the people who are terrible, right? The, we're the people who are always striving to be better and self-improve and, you know, well, if you have no self, that's not a problem, right? Mm. You talk about the myths of control also as part of that conversation 
this idea that control is actually even a thing, <laughs> that, that, it's, um, that it's possible to be in control, that it's possible to be in control all of the time, that there's a should involved in it. You actually should be in control all of the time, that there's something wrong with you, that if, if you're not or if you can't constantly be in control, that uh, you should do something to have more of it and, and that other people have this magical state, which is a should, an aspirational state, and you don't. So much of this is built around this notion that we are, we exist in a world that is, I'm going to go back to that phrase, lockdownable. And it's like, the more that you assume that everything is within your control, it's almost like you are inviting suffering into your life. You know, because the reality of the world is it's not. And yet, and yet, this is our default approach to everything in life. And I wonder, I often wonder why that is. Like, why do we, why do we seem to arrive into adulthood with this wiring, which is, is so slanted toward suffering? My teacher at the monastery used to flat out say, it's not what, it's how. It's not the circumstances of, of growing up uh, non-binary or not, or on a farm or not. Uh, it's how we build a life, how we are taught to treat ourselves. And I have never encountered someone who was not given the message in one way or another, there is something wrong with you. I, I mean, they don't call it intergenerational for nothing, right? So happened to our parents, happened to their parents, happened, 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 happened. And I admire people like you and a lot of my spiritual heroes who say, well, the buck stops here then. I might not have been given those skills, but I sure am going to go find them somehow by hook or by crook <laughs> to end this cycle somehow. I think it's one of the, the most noble things a human being can do. And by the way, I haven't yet opted myself out of that cycle. <laughs> I'm still struggling with all the same stuff as much as Come I on. read, as much as I, I know all the things, but I'm like, I'm human and right there with, with everybody else listening. Like we're like, it's still a lot of life that I want to like say, oh, I can map this. I can figure it out. I can, there's a, there's control that I have over it. And for the most part, for me, in, in the context of my life, it's it's over the um, the nature of the relationships with people that I can't imagine moving through this season on the planet without, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet, like the truth is always impermanence, and uh, you know everything is sort of like in perpetual flux. Um, you follow up in your book with like one one of the other big ideas, really kind of follows nicely with that, which is to get used to not knowing you know, which is that there is a certain freedom. Like not only is there, you know, like the renewals, but there's a, there's a freedom in actually not having control in not knowing all the answers and just surrendering to the fact that, oh yeah, like stuff's just gonna happen. And I'm, I'm gonna get asked something in a big meeting and have no idea what the answer is. And the notion that there's freedom to that is a little counterintuitive, but if you kind of just like sit with it, it's like, huh, well, what if there was? <laughs> Did you say 
I'm going to get asked something in a big meeting and not, which is really funny because like, I don't, I don't have, is that your big fear right now? I don't have big meetings. I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm postulating. How many many Zooms are you on? Yeah. Like I'll be in my suit and tie and all of a sudden I'll be, uh, I think that would be fun to do a Zoom like that um, with you as long as it was, you know, a game, a play. Um, Yeah, no, that's, 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 so first of all, it's true. You can't control anything. But second of all, once you give up on trying to, that's what you get. Freedom, happiness, ease, joy, jokes. <laughs> I get a lot of hate, as you implied earlier. You know, I am on social media and I am an LGBTQ person on social media. And, you know, I used to not be able to really yeah, not not shockingly, but you know, it used to be very difficult. The kind of psychic weight of everybody really telling you the most awful things that that you've ever heard in your life on social media. And one thing that really helped me is the realization that I do not want to control other people's reactions. I couldn't, but also I don't want to, <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to be playing that particular game. It was really profound. Just a few moments ago, you reminded me that as a little kid, I had to use my smarts in order to survive. So the very, one of the very first things we talked about being in the barn, having an ear out for my dad's boots on the gravel. I had to be highly intelligent and suss out how I could do a quick change or, you know, run the, to, to the other entrance of the barn and make it out. You know, I had to use, let alone sussing out my parents' moods and being intelligent enough to navigate around all of that and not get in trouble like we talked about. But then you grow up and that intelligence that I used to survive has nothing to say about love, has nothing to say about being vulnerable with a partner, has nothing to say about death, loss. The intelligence I needed to survive is really not helpful in so many areas that we call human lives. Mm. Yeah. And and at the same time, right, the almost always bundled with that intelligence is a devotion, often unwittingly, but out of survival to hypervigilance. Yes. And the psychic weight of sustained hypervigilance year after year after year becomes brutalizing. And at some point, if on the one hand, if you're perpetually in environments and communities where you feel like it must be there for me to literally physically survive. It's something that maybe, you know, like you, you say, this is a part of the equation of the life that I'm choosing to live. But, but what if you could figure out a way to be in communities and conversations and in 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 an emotional and psychological and cognitive space where you didn't feel like you needed to carry that burden, maybe not completely let it go, but not at that level. Like what, would become available to you 
from a bandwidth standpoint, for love, for connection, for devotion, for whatever it may be, when you're not carrying that, the volume of that load anymore? It's such a good question. I was shocked, one gajillion percent shocked when I learned that there are people in the world who are not part of communities and constantly trying to prove to that community that they're valuable. Hmm. <laughs> uh, they're just, you know, are part of a community and don't even think about it. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I want that. <laughs> so yeah, it's a really, really good, important question. Yeah. And it starts to bring, bring it full circle also. Um, one of the last things that you talk about in your book, and I've heard you talk about elsewhere, is this notion of being passive in your own happiness is deadly, of not sitting back and waiting for things to happen, of really being active in the exploration of how you want your life to show up. And I think that's such a powerful invitation for anybody and it, almost everything that we're talking about, probably everything that we're talking about, like a lot of the context has been, you know, like in your life has been in the context of gender, has been in the context of sexuality. But the truth is, just like you just described, everybody has existed at some point in a community or wanted to be accepted by a group or a person or a community where they felt like they had to in some way hide or be someone else or carry a different identity and give up you know, a certain uh, amount of their agency in the quest to just live a good life, to be happy. So your invitation, you know, in all the work that you do, I think it's so interesting that every, literally everything that you say, every idea that you have is relevant in every person's life, in every context. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is my global proclamation. I've <laughs> Um, well, that's funny. I thought you were going to, um, I don't know if you know the LGBTQ phrase to read someone, no. you know, like open them book, open them like a book and read them. And, um, I really thought you, I think you did pretty well. You read me what I am as a walking metaphor. I hope it's darn clear what I was told is wrong with me. And I hope it's also darn clear that I love that. I love that about myself. I celebrate it. I show it. I dance within it and have joy all around it. You can do the same. Mm. That feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To talk well and often and kindly to yourself. Mm, thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Tristan Angel Reese about living and advocating for your truth. You'll find a link to Tristan's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.